You need to be in the arena. Uh, you need to have the blood, sweat and tears of, of being there with people and therefore vulnerability. You know, if I am the Colin Hunter who's going around going, I'm brilliant, yeah, that's, that's not useful to people. And also the opposite is if I'm wandering around going, I am crap at all of this stuff, yeah, they're not going to want to follow. But I think there's nothing more powerful than when people are sat across from somebody who says something um, and people go, wow, yeah, that's me. That's, that's exactly what I feel. Colin Hunter is the founder and CEO of Potential Squared, a company dedicated to amplifying leaders' intrinsic qualities to help them build a culture that is more thoughtful, innovative, and experimental. We'll discuss how Potential Squared accomplishes this and what challenges Colin has faced in helping others reach their full potential. So I feel like there's two types of rapport, and I'd love to get your feel on this from a leadership standpoint, right? From a sales professional standpoint, working with prospects and clients, the two types of rapport are, the first one is you are trying to build rapport or be liked because of your own insecurities, your own need to validate yourself, um, a little bit of a, a needed boost to the self-esteem, and so people use rapport to be liked and because they're like, they think that someone's going to buy from them, right? And there's a great feeling around it, right? Like traditional rapport is easy, comforting, harmonious, right? Those words come to mind. Yep. But the other type of uh, sales rapport or relationship rapport is the kind where you're setting an environment up for someone to feel like they can be honest and vulnerable. Hmm. So it's a different, right? Yep. Therapists use it, right? Psychologists use it. I think Freud was the first one to introduce it maybe back in the early 1900s. Um, but it was this whole idea around how do you create a conversation where the other person feels like they can be honest and vulnerable with you and they're not going to be critiqued or judged. That's got to be a strength or some kind of skill in leadership, right? Yeah. Especially if you're going to yeah. kick someone in the backside, right? Get underneath their yeah. skin. For me, it's the Brenny Brown vulnerability piece, the man in the arena quote. Uh, so one of the ways I sell is to, uh, I'm in the arena. It's that old story about the man who falls down the hole and all these people pass and never help him. Eventually, he says to this man walking past, said, can you help me? He's, Man jumps down the hole and the man in the hole goes, what are you doing down here? You know, I'm asking you to help me get out. And he says, yeah, but I've been here before. For for me, the, the principle, I know how to get out, the principle in here for sales a lot of the times and leadership is that you need to be in the arena. Uh, you need to have the blood, sweat and tears of, of being there with people and therefore vulnerability, Brenny Brown's principle of vulnerability is, is massive. You know, if I am the Colin Hunter who's going around going, I'm brilliant, yeah, that's that's not useful to people. And also the opposite is if I'm wandering around going, I am crap at all of this stuff, yeah, they're not going to want to follow. But vulnerability is that ability to be able to to say what you're good at, but also say where you failed and learned and be able to share the stories. And I, I think there's nothing more powerful than when people are sat across from somebody who says something um, and people go, wow, yeah, that's me. 
that's that's exactly what I feel. And that's that for me is a leadership trait, but it's also a sales trait. Yeah, I, we, I say it's when the other person can say, wow, that person gets me. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's when that bond is made. And to your point, whether it's sales, leadership or whatever, right, that's that's where the relationship starts. I don't know if you uh, you um, ever talk about this in your your training pieces, but there was somebody once said the real skill to coaching, to leadership, to sales is using the other people's words back to them. And somebody did it to me once and I didn't realize we were doing, but I thought this person really, really gets me, really, really gets me. And all, all they were doing was rather than interpreting words and giving their version of it, they were just using the words that were I was using. And one person literally did a map of on coaching and every time I said a particular word, he was ticking off and eventually showed me back how often I'd said fear, how often I'd said nervous in there. Um, and that ability to observe and listen in the moment is a sales skill. But for me, it's a fundamental leadership skill, particularly in virtual worlds now. So, yeah. So let's let's move on to 1B, right? Mm. How do you approach some of these cultural challenges? If you, if you want to use the example that I gave earlier about a disconnect between what leadership wanted and what the teams wanted, that's fine. If you want to give a different example, that's fine too. It's, it's an interesting one because we've evolved and we would say that we create playgrounds. So that's the one thing that we want to do is create playgrounds. And, and it started off as laboratories, Dan, but um, the thought of people in white coats was scaring people. Yeah, they were thinking, is this, you know, this is some sort of mind shrinking exercise. So we decided playground was better. And then we got people saying, yeah, but I was bullied in the playground. And we didn't want to undermine that, that, that feeling that had. But the, the principle is, if you think about when you're in the state of flow, we've got to create the environment where people be, can be in the flow. Are you, are you talking like um, Mihai Chechmihai type flow? I'm glad you pronounced his name because I haven't been able to pronounce it. So it's really sort of but exactly that. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's it's this purposeful practice. When you think about Federer, you think about the, the great sports people, they, all their purposeful practice allows them in the moment to have habits, practices that become instinctive to flow. So how do we create playgrounds to allow them to do that? And the way we do it is, is to almost recreate their world. So we did something with um, New York Stock Exchange where we created over the last two, three years, we've created a case study around them setting up an exchange on Mars, yeah, stock exchange on Mars. So we recreated with the use of VR, with the use of actors, with the use of a case study, the environment so they could see that the world was the same as they were working with, but there were stretches and challenges they were taking on. And then we put in place... Uh, a number of things. One is that we get them to work in smaller groups with a coach. So there's four or five people who are in there. So they get a coaching at the beginning. They get a coaching as they go through. And even when they get to the role plays on the case study where they might be meeting the CEO, COO, their coach is in the room with them, coaching them around the conversation. So there's a buildup of learning and experience through that. There's a case study they follow. And they can't remember the name of the actor, but they can remember the character's name of the actor in there. So they get to this feeling, which is that when I was in with the CEO, it just clicked. 
And so by getting immersive like that with the case studies, and I've seen this happen at senior sales. There's an organization we used to partner with, and they used to do senior sales uh, working with CIOs, and they would bring ex-CIOs in, and they would create this case study where they had to pitch for work, and they would do exactly the same thing, getting feedback all the way through. So that's what we do with our clients is we create case studies so that the work feels real. They've got a coach supporting. They're in peer groups so they can learn from each other. Um, and then finally, we do a measurement piece. So one of our big areas is measurement. So having a measurement system, um, whether it's of habits or systems of different practices that you could deploy, and we measure people against that. And that's where we've got the awards because we were able to show that um, that measurement change and, and trajectory uh, with the client. Yeah. On the actor part, you mm. mentioned that in a previous discussion. Share a little bit about that. What? That's a unique strategy. What, what's going on there? So for me, it was it was crystallized a, a long while ago. We were one of the first organizations to put this in place, but we were we wanted people to experiment with conversations. How often do we just take? It's either my boss does it this way, so I follow, or the top salesperson does it this way, so I follow, or I make it up as I go along, and I've never really varied because it's a bit like the lucky socks I was wearing for my first sales win. I keep on wearing them. And so we start to say, so how do we create a forum theater where they can they can have a go and play with this? Yeah. And so therefore, we got two actors up front. We gave them a scenario, and the scenario could be, Let's take a leadership scenario. It could be coaching a high performer, which some people forget. They've got the poor performers they deal with all the time, the high performers they let they let fly in theory until they leave because they haven't had their attention paid to them. So we have that conversation, and there's a fixed seat that is the high performer, and the leadership seat is the um, what we call the hot seat. And you've got an audience surrounding this in a semicircle of, say, up to 20, 25 people or smaller groups. So we get the three-minute scenario by the two actors, and at the end of that, we pause as a facilitator, and we ask the audience, what did you think? And they're focused on the hot seat, and they say what they like, uh, what they might tweak and change. And so we then get them to talk to the actor in the hot seat to say, right, tweak three things, and they have another go at it, so they rewind. But at this stage, the audience has a remote control. So at any point, they can take a timeout, a pause, Anytime they can mind tap into the uh, either the hot seat or the fixed seat to find out what that actor's thinking. And then eventually we get to the point where they go, right, I'm going to have a go at this, or we get them in there. And even culturally, say in um, China where we were working, culturally it wasn't somebody wouldn't volunteer to go in the seat. <laughs> One of my uh, colleagues had a brilliant idea, which is they put a number stuck to the bottom of those 20 seats in the room. And they went round with a bowl with the numbers 1 to 20 in little pieces of folded up paper. And because the Chinese mentality was very clear, as soon as my number was picked out, that's fate. That's me getting in the hot seat, so they get in the seat. So we get people into the seats. They have a go. And also the audience starts to get in and go, right, time out. No, I think you didn't do this. I think you should be doing this instead. So they tag team in. So by the end... It's um, it's quite a, an event, but it feels like sometimes the scene from Airplane where you've got the distressed passenger, where there's a line of people ready to, to have a go. So the experiment is we could get 20, 30 different ways out of a group 
to expose the the conversation. But people feel it's good because it's practicing the small habits. It's seeing other people in action, which a lot of people learn from. But it's also feeling the fear and getting up there and having a go is one of the biggest things. And you get senior people who quake and they have a go and other people go, wow, he's vulnerable. So we, we do a lot of role play stuff with a couple some of our clients, right? The, the philosophy behind it, right, is this, right? A PGA Tour golf player. Um, I did not say live. All right, so PGA Tour. Right? I'm hearing that. <laughs> you know, they practice that swing. They get mm-hmm. coached on that swing. They record that swing, and and they study it. Right. Um, um, an NFL football player here in the United States, right? Constantly under critique, right? Filmed, film study, film breakdown. What would you do different, right? Um, then they go out and they do walkthroughs on, yeah. on their plays, right? And then in sales, right? What is a sales professional's number one skill set? And in our world, we would argue it's the conversations that they're having. Yeah. All right. It's not the demo. It's not their expertise. There's a lot of people with great demos, yeah. great expertises, but it's the conversations, right? What are you doing to practice those? So we yeah. do role play. Mm-hmm. I'm going to flip it to leadership now. To me, if I'm aspiring to be a great leader, one of my skill sets is my conversations mm-hmm. because that is my process to becoming, or one of my processes to becoming a great leader. Mm-hmm. Do you find there's a stigma to role playing? Do you find that? People think, oh, role-playing, I used to do this in college. I don't need to do this anymore. I mean, what, what do you see? What do you see there when you, like, when you guys talk about doing this role-play stuff, when you talk about bringing in these actors and stuff? Mm. So there is a stigma, but I, I think there's, there's a core piece underlying leadership, which is coaching. And the skill of coaching for me is the skill of being a salesperson similar to it, is asking the right question. What's on your mind? What's driving you? What's, you know, Good friend Michael Bungie standing here in the coaching habit has a very simple philosophy. What's on your mind? And what else? What's the key issue? Yeah, what do you need to stop doing to start making progress? Whatever it is, the simple questions. So when we get to uh, leadership and we get to the stigma role play, one is practicing that with peers, is coaching a peer. So if I was coaching you, if I was coaching effectively, I'm taking real care because this is your business. It's a real issue, and therefore I'm going to coach you in a particular way. The difficulty is when you get to a difficult part of the conversation, which might be challenging. And, you know, we know each other, but we don't know each other as well as we probably want to be in the future, Dan. But if I got to a particular point where I was going, this isn't this isn't working for me, Dan. That You know, what you're saying isn't matching with what you're trying to do, for example then how do I have that conversation? Now, that's where the actor's being trained. Because when you're peer role-playing, a lot of the times you go, ha, 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 that's typical of you. Whereas the actors are still in mode. So when they're giving the feedback, they're still in character. So they can't get away from that moment of feeling they're in that. So we find that the role-play fear goes away after the first time they've done it. In fact, they look forward to it. They look forward to getting in the seat. So... That's one thing. 
And then the second thing is, is as long as we're taking it as an experiment, it's a bit like selling. If you go in and say to a client, I'm going to, we're going to experiment about a particular way of doing something, they're, they're more likely to buy into it than if you go and say, this is guaranteed to success, succeed and it's going to cost you X. They go, okay, that's a big risk. But if you can experiment with people just like role play, then leadership, it becomes less of a stigma. Um, and what's interesting for me is when I'm coaching CEOs, occasionally I'll bring in actors to, say, play investors in the, um, the end of your results where they go out in front of the investors and we'll get questions fired. We'll get, you know, ANSI reporters coming in and doing that. Now, that is essential learning and role play. So as long as the actors are professional, for me, you don't get the stigma. When you get peers, then it becomes more difficult, I think, to to get the real conversations going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like the role play. Um, mm. It would seem a vital part to become a great leader is you're going to have to role play. Yeah, agreed. You don't know what's going to get thrown at you. So my sense on conversations has always been, what's up here mm -hmm. is going to find its way <laughs> out here, right? Yeah. Out your mouth. You know, what you think is going to drive what you say or what you think is going to drive what you ask or what you don't say or what you don't ask. Hmm. So do you guys do work around, like, I'll call it mindset um, for a lack of any other word at this point, mindset? Yeah. I mean, for me, mindset, I, I'm – particularly lucky that I got to work with a guy called Jamie Smart who wrote the book Clarity and he's brilliant and he talks about as a child we've got a self-correcting mind that self-clearing mind that just is as he describes as cutting through the Colorado River cutting through the Grand Canyon you know carving through stone insightful and as we grow older what we do is we the the river becomes frozen we add in things that we can say can't say things that we should say, and therefore we get less effective as we grow older. And he talks about falling out of your thinking, own thinking, and driven. And I think this is where it fits in with your philosophy uh, on sales as well, which is if I go in with a target, I need to sell you and I need to, it's the same with leadership. If I go in, I've got to persuade you to do it my way, then you're never going to get them. But if you go in with a principle, which is what's on your mind, with a self-correcting mind, and you do something which we call connections. We have three C's, Dan, that we use. One is confidence, physicality, vocality that you operate with, so which is executive presence, dial up, dial down, adapt. Conviction is the values set, consistency, values, identity, purpose, the red thread that you have. And as a salesperson, that's why the longer-term game is always important because I want to ensure that my red thread is consistent, congruent, and coherent as people experience me over time. But a New Zealand friend gave me our definition of connection, which is the ability to dance with the music others bring to you. Yeah. And therefore, when you're dancing with their music, you've got to listen to it. And therefore, judgmental goes out the window. Curiosity goes into that. And therefore, mindset for me is about connection before content, which is a good friend, Chad Littlefield's piece, which is connection before content will drive that mindset to be curious to be about finding common patterns and then saying maybe I'm not the right person or we're not the right product. 
that's the mindset we work with. Yeah. Go to conviction. Hmm. That's a big one. Um, yeah. Only I, in these role plays that we talk about, right? People role play, but quite often there's a lack of conviction. Are there things that you guys do to help people find their conviction, right? Because yeah. I see it all the time. They're just words, but I don't mm. feel conviction behind it. Yeah, we, we talk about two things. One is the purpose and why we do stuff. So we work a lot around why are you a salesperson? Why are you, you know, I had a friend who used to work for Bowater Scott, and he used to um, do uh, toilet roll holders for restrooms. Um, and that was his passion. And he wanted me to come work. And I was like, don't really want to work for a company that only sells toilet roll holders. And he said, no, come out for a day with me and go. And so we went out and he took me around some of the best toilets in the area, restrooms, and he just showed me the dynamics. And by the end of it, I must say, I was bought into the technology. and uh, So the purpose and the passion behind why we do things is, is so important. So that's one thing is to get people uh, bought into that. And, you know, we do a lot of work in the luxury sector. If I go into a hotel or a restaurant, I can tell whether somebody is connected in with purpose and has conviction around why they serve and, and it's also related to are they convicted and connected to the brand that they serve as well. So that's one thing is purpose. Why do we do this? Um, you know, and luxury is where necessity ends. So they create dreams for people in the luxury world. So how, how strongly are they connecting with that? But the second bit is identity. Um, and this is where we do a lot of work around every action you take is a vote for the person you want to be or become. And that's where James Clear quotes that in his book, Atomic Habits. And therefore, for me, identity is being very, very clear. We do a lot of work with people to say, so even of a salesperson, what identity do you want as a salesperson? Yeah. We do some work on that too, identity versus reputation. Yeah. Um, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Eric Potterat, um, he talks about that a lot too with high performers. Um, across the yeah. board, whether it's a leader, an athlete, or in sales. Mm. Um, but yeah, conviction. Mm. So what you're saying is if someone's feeling or they get feedback that they lack conviction, they have to do a deep dive starting with purpose. Yeah. Okay. What's the purpose behind what you're doing, right? What's the purpose behind where you're putting your energy, the purpose mm -hmm. behind the conversation, right? Yeah. Things like that. It is. It's also related to the brand though. We never take it out of the brand. So let's say the Plaza Athenee in Paris, one of the best hotels in Paris, they had a, a values and I loved it. They had tensions. One of their brands was family, but not over familiar. Yep luxury but not excess so they had they had these tensions and what they would do is work out how the individual felt of so state family but not over familiar the real test was whether they could walk along a corridor or greet a guest in a way which was make it feel like it was a family space to stay but not over familiar and that takes a bit of work and tension and it, the bottom line is we work down to the individual being very comfortable with their own sense of what family and over familiar 
worked, but they had to work it into their brand. So, so I don't think we do enough of that either in sales or leadership where we really connect people into their stories, their backgrounds that they can share and be part of when they're living in their conviction world. Yeah. What are the programs that you offer? Right. And, um, as I've gotten to know you, I'm attracted toward your demeanor, your, your poise, your experience, how you listen, right? So what programs like to, would you offer people who want to get better at leadership? Find their um, cadence, right? Find their their superpower strengths within themselves what what would you suggest what would you share i think i'd share two well actually three options because this is what we tend to do one is it might be a leader of a function say they're an hr leader and they want to do that or they're a sales leader because i think contextualizing the leadership is important you know, so one option is that we work with those people. So it's less about their leadership as we're going to work with you as this bottle here. And we're going to we're going to really focus, but we're actually going to see you in situ. We're going to work with your real team, your real function. And by the way, we're going to coach you in situ as you're dealing with that. So we've got real data. And this is one of the biggest issues for us is unless we see the person in action, all we've got is their word. Yeah. You know? to do that. So one is we offer that and that's where we get a lot of HR into a lot of finance, sales, marketing functions will say, can you come and work with us? Because they know they're going to get the real time feedback and they can tweak and change it. And there's nothing like, you know, I've stood up for the first half an hour as a leader and somebody's in the background giving you prompts in the acting context and saying, you know, okay, great. But you realize you're only talking to one half of the audience. Do you also realize you're using fillers, whatever it is that you're doing? and then tweaking it. So the functional academies, as we call them, I think are a way of double skilling. <laughs> yeah, you're working with the teams and you're working with the leaders. And I think that's my favorite because I also love seeing demonstrable change in business metrics as part of that. That's a key thing for me. Sales go up, the, the marketing hits, whatever it is that you've got in there or the, the audits were better. The other way is to take you into a leadership academy and put you through leadership programs. Now, there's what we call super to nuts. So it can be from beginning to purpose right the way through to your difficult conversations, handling your tough performers, your poor performers, all of those. And th those can be six to nine months because what we tend to do is we do a chunk and then we put you back into the workplace to practice it. We put you into communities and we put you in coaching circles. So you're coming back every so often to talk amongst your peer group about what's working well bit like we were talking about RAF groups in terms of getting us together. It's still doing that. So that's, those are two options. And then the final bit, which I find is, is useful is executive coaching. Um, mm -hmm. But again, if we're going to do executive coaching, I want some data. So I'll probably do some conversations with your peers, your key stakeholders, get the feedback. So that I've got, I'm reading what they're reading and then I can work with you in, in that space. And again, you know, there's, a number of my coaches are still friends and have dinner with them. And a bit like Jamie Smart does for me, I don't charge them. I just sit down and talk. But that's built up connections and business development opportunities for me, left, right, center as we've gone through that. So those are the three options that we work with with people. Yeah. What juices you about all of that? What excites you about all of that the most? 
So the person who taught me about the Colin Hunter always used to say, so why do you do this purpose? And eventually, after a few glasses of wine one night, not great wine, but it was okay, but it was, it was good, I said, it sounds cheesy, but I want to create heroes of the people I work with. Yeah, that's what I live for. And therefore, I've always had that, Dan. I would, I love to see people shine. I love to see people that I've had even a small part in playing in their lives um, take on a, a, a goal. I mean, I, there was a gentleman I coached who was CEO of a large financial services firm who'd been through three recessions with me coaching him. And I coached and helped him. And I just saw how he transformed from a quiet, introverted person into this person who led an organization through three recessions. Tell me a little bit about the ongoing component, right? Yeah. So is it, does it vary? Is it monthly? Is it quarterly? Does it kind of alternate? So for me, it's a, if I'm working with somebody on that length of time, there's an annual review with their boss. So that's one thing. So I used to get together with him and the chair um, and the chairs changed over time and they would give me feedback about what he was working on. Uh, then there was a 24-7 open to a call connection piece. I think that's the most important thing for me. What's interesting is how do you price this? And when you price it for me, it, would you rather pay, what is it, $40,000 to have somebody as a coach on demand all year round um, and able to, to fly in and do that or talk on the end of a telephone. So I would have a regular rhythm where he came to me for a need. Even if it's just I'm doing a deck, I'm doing a pitch, I've got a leadership conversation, can I talk to you? So we do that. But we would do deep dives every so often, use of the actors, other pieces in there. So I'd probably see him roughly two, three times a year. And in between, it would be telephone calls all the way through. But he always described me as his comfort blanket. Yeah, in there. That's where I became. And it was great. Yeah. How can how can people get a hold of you? What's the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, LinkedIn. Happy to always connect on LinkedIn. So uh, Colin Hunter at LinkedIn. The Colin Hunter. Uh, Instagram is another source um, to, to come like, through to. I like the V. The Colin Hunter, it's in there. Everybody's going, that's a bit arrogant. The Colin Hunter. And then I tell them a story and they go, oh, I get it. Yeah. But um, so that's uh, another source uh, to go. Or you can find me at Be More Wrong, which is the title of my book, uh, bemorewrong.com. You can find out a bit more of the book before I write the second one. Yeah. Which is just about to start in my head coming up soon. But those are the main parts. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, it's been great having you on the show here, Colin. And I love the leadership perspective. I love being here, Dan. It's our conversations are always great. It's just nice to be able to share them now into the world as well. So yeah, I love it. Nice to have you. That was Colin Hunter, founder and CEO of Potential Squared, sharing his insight on helping leaders build cultures of experimentation and play. Thanks for listening to Breaking Sales. If you want to get engaged with us outside of the podcast, be sure to go to our website, lapham180.com. Go to contact us. You can also engage with us on LinkedIn at Dan Lappin or Lappin180.